and uh, hopefully you're seeking the Lord's guidance about uh, what you should give, like that pastor uh, encouraged you to do just a few minutes ago. And, uh, and so I want to do something that preachers aren't supposed to do, right? I'm going I'm to talk about money tonight, and, uh, but from a little different perspective. Uh, I'm not going to try to twist anybody's arm uh, or anything like that. <clears throat> but um, somebody did say this, though, that money talks. <clears throat> I'll not deny. I heard it once. It said goodbye, right? <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> I've heard that one before. But anyway, uh, story is told about John Wesley. Uh, if you remember... <clears throat> You know who that was, kind of one of the founders of Methodism, um, you know, fiery preacher. But uh, one time he was preaching a sermon uh, concerning money, and his first point was, get all you can. And uh, in the audience that day, there was a miserly fellow who uh, heard that first point and said, boy, I like that, you know, and he said, amen. And uh, then the second point came, he said, keep all you can. And uh, he said, amen to that as well. But then Wesley got to the third point, he said, give all you can. And at that point, the rich man said, man, what a shame to spoil a good sermon. And uh, <clears throat> hopefully it won't spoil the sermon tonight. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> but I do want to ask you a question. How should we think about missions giving? All right, we're being challenged to pray about giving. We're, we're being encouraged to give. And, and um, you know, you, you have different missionaries on your wall out there and, and uh, you know, presenting different fields here this week. Um, and, uh, and hopefully to, to burden you, to, to help you think about the, the need. But, but in general, how should we think about missions giving? And uh, so I want to ask that question, and I want to answer that question tonight <clears throat> to some degree. But um, you know, ultimately, our thinking should go back to the Bible. Right? Uh, the Bible should shape and mold our thinking. And, <clears throat> and so I want to just think through this whole thing of, of missions and help you to see where we fit into it, and, and why we should give, how we should think about missions giving. So Mark 16 and verse 15. Let's go ahead and stand, if you don't mind, tonight, if you're able. And uh, I'll just read uh, one verse here to get us started. Mark 16 and verse 15. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's simple, isn't it? <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to study your word tonight. And I do ask you to please, Lord, guide and direct the words that I have to say. Lord, help me to think clearly. Help me, Lord, to be able to express the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would take your words and would apply them uh, to our hearts in a very, uh, very personal, very specific way. Lord, help us to think clearly about uh, what missions giving is all about. And Lord, help us then to be willing to allow your spirit to guide us into our specific uh, efforts, Lord, on, on, on your behalf. And Lord, please uh, speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> you know, the last words of, uh, of dying people are often thought to have special meaning. Um, you know, they're usually long remembered by, by those who loved them. And when we think about Jesus, of course, Jesus <clears throat> died on the cross, rose again. And uh, so his last words actually came after he died, um, but uh, before he ascended up into heaven. And during that time, we're familiar with the story, we're familiar with the accounts of the Great Commission, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> but if we look at verse number 19 here in our, in our text, he says, So then after the Lord had received 
uh, I'm sorry, had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And so during that time between his resurrection and the time that he would ascend up into heaven, Jesus delivered to his disciples his final instructions. He met with them at least five times and gave to them what we know of today as the Great Commission. Now, the Great Commission, <clears throat> the Great Commission gives us really the reason that churches exist. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he gave, the, gave it to the disciples as a group, as a body, if you will, as a church. And, and that responsibility is passed on from church to church throughout history, and it's our responsibility today. You see, the church does not exist so that we just have something to do on Sunday, uh, nor does it exist so that we can just entertain children or put up beautiful buildings like some churches do. No, Jesus says here that the church exists to tell people how they can have salvation in him. And then to teach those that get saved how to live as disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. Let's just take a look at the Great Commission here. In Mark 16, 15, he said unto them, Go ye into all the world. So first of all, notice the place. All right, the place. Where are we supposed to go? We're supposed to go to all the world. <clears throat> all right, have you, have you done that yet? Right? All right, let's, let's just think through this Great Commission. So all the world, we are to go to them and, and we are to preach. All right, we're supposed to preach to them the gospel. Now again, that means we're not supposed to just uh, meet together as a body and wait for them to come to us, right? No, we are to go to them. We are to take the gospel to the lost. All right, so, so the place is, is all the world. Secondly, notice the people. He says we are to preach the gospel to every creature. All right, every creature. So everyone who is saved has an obligation to everyone who is not saved to tell them how to get saved, don't we? That is our responsibility. Take the gospel to every creature. Now you see the picture developing. All the world, every creature. All right, that's more than just the people in my neighborhood. Uh, that's more than just uh, the people in, in, in Sacramento and, and the, and the uh, suburbs around it. Uh, and that's, that's all, whatever it is, 7 or 8 billion people on earth today. So every creature. Then notice thirdly, the preaching. He says we are to go and preach the gospel. So missions is preaching the gospel. All right, we're trying to develop our thinking. What, what, what does the Great Commission mean to us? Well, preaching the gospel. All right, not just preaching religion uh, or a particular church. Uh, or providing health care, or clean water, or feeding the hungry, or all these good things that people want to do, uh, nor is it about spreading democracy, or, 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 or even building buildings. We talked about that a little bit at lunch this, this afternoon. Um, <clears throat> you know, we might be able to do some of these things along the way, but missions is preaching the gospel. That must be the focus. That must be the mission, the responsibility that we bear on our shoulders is we've got to get the gospel to people. Now, of course, the Great Commission is also given in Matthew 28. You don't need to turn there, but I'll go ahead and read it for you uh, to remind you what it says. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 18, we see Jesus' claim. First of all, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And it's important for us to remember that as we think about the Great Commission. That Jesus is the high power. And in his authority, which is ultimate, as he sits on the throne tonight, 
he tells us to then take the gospel to every creature. So notice verse 19, he said, we see Jesus' command. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. All right, so here he uses a little bit different terminology. He says we need to take it to all nations. And that's the idea of all ethnic groups, all, all peoples of the world. And then he says we are to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. And then he finishes it up with what we call Jesus' comfort. He says, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. What a precious promise to those who are fulfilling the Great Commission. But notice in Matthew 28, Jesus gives us three tasks, right? Now again, when we think of the Great Commission, we think of preaching the gospel, and that certainly is the focus, but that's only part of it, right? He says we are to go to teach all nations. That's um, uh, the idea of making disciples. That's showing them how to get saved. Then baptize them who do believe. But then he says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded them, commanded you. And that's teaching them to follow the, the teachings of Jesus. We call that discipleship. So my question tonight is, are we, all right, as, as a church here in, in, in Sacramento, the Bible Fellowship Baptist, are, are we fulfilling the Great Commission? All right, are we really fulfilling the Great Commission? Are we taking the gospel to every creature, are we then, those that get saved, are we baptizing them? Are we discipling them? All right, but every creature in all the world. Now, hopefully, you are helping as individual believers, as individual parts of this body. Hopefully, you are helping reach people here. Hopefully, you're helping in that process of discipleship by uh, either teaching somebody one-on-one or teaching a Sunday school class or, or at least trying to be an encouragement to others and things like that. Um, hopefully, you are part of that work. What about the rest of the world? Will you go? <clears throat> Maybe God will call somebody here from this church to go somewhere around the world. Uh, that would certainly be awesome. I'm sure your pastor would be excited uh, to see that happen. <clears throat> but let's say we do have somebody who wants to go. Well, how, how, do, how do they get there? You know, let's say, <clears throat> let's say one of you decided tonight, you know, I believe God wants me to go to, uh, you know, I don't know, Zambia, Africa. First country that popped into my mind. Uh, God wants me to go to Zambia, Africa. Well, how are you going to get there? You know, you're going to swim? <laughs> All right, I'm sure it costs money to get to Zambia, no matter you know, whether you fly or take a ship or whatever, it's going to cost money. Uh, and then if you're going to bring some clothes along, you know, and, and how are you going to live when you get there? All right, all of these are important questions, very practical questions, but questions that really we need to come to the scriptures to find the answers. So does the Bible have an answer? And I believe it does. In the book of Acts, we see how the apostles, who, remember, were trained by Jesus during his earthly ministry, we see how the apostles gradually uh, figured out how to do the Great Commission. Okay, uh, So let's turn over to, to the book of Acts, if you would. Acts chapter 1. We'll start there, and we'll just take a little, uh, a little survey of, uh, of the outworking of the Great Commission here in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, in verse number 8, all right, we see uh, once again Jesus giving the Great Commission. He says, You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, 
both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So, so Jesus laid out a, a, a strategic plan, if you will, for his disciples. He said, first of all, you need to evangelize Jerusalem, where, where the church is located, and, and, and then you need to spread out to Judea and, and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Um, but notice it, it's all actually to be parallel. All right, they, they should have, you know, after the day of Pentecost, they should have started doing all of that, evangelizing Judea and Samaria and, and sending people out to the uttermost parts of the earth. <clears throat> but as we see it play out in the book of Acts, it didn't quite work out that way. Uh, some time passes, we get to chapter 8, and there's still just one church. Okay, it's still just one church. Now, it's a huge church, but there's just one church. And in Acts chapter 8, something happens to stir that up. And uh, it's interesting uh, sometimes how God will use uh, even the devil's attacks and, and uh, persecution and difficulty and things to steer his servants and to stir them up to get them to do what he told them to do. But in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1, he says, Paul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. All right, so we see the apostles stay at Jerusalem, because that's where Jesus had planted them. But, uh, but many of the other disciples began to spread out, and, and many of them were just going home. They had come to Jerusalem for the, for the feast, had gotten saved and you know, stayed there, because they wanted to hear more of, of the apostles' doctrine. But, um, but they begin to spread out to, to avoid this persecution. Uh, but notice they don't quit on God. And that's usually what happens when people leave church because of persecution. They, they just quit on God. But, but as you read the following verses... All right, verse 2, we have Stephen's funeral. Uh, verse 3, Saul uh, continued to make havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. And therefore, verse number 4, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So as the disciples begin to spread, now again, this is not the apostles. This is not anybody that's been ordained into gospel ministry, but just the regular Christians begin to spread, going, going to their, their hometowns or, or maybe packing up and moving to a town where things are a little quieter. And, and, uh, but as they go, they share the gospel with everybody they meet. Um, again, this idea of, of preaching the gospel here isn't necessarily standing behind a pulpit or even standing on a street corner screaming or something like that. Uh, it's just talking to people and telling people uh, about Jesus. And, and the church members were scattered, and that's exactly what they did as they spread the gospel. In uh, verse number 5, he says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. So, so Philip remembered back to what Jesus had said and said, I'm going to go to Samaria and preach the gospel. And God does a great work there. In uh, the latter part of chapter 8, we see the church organized and, and God uh, even uh, uh, gives them some, you know, a, a visible manifestation of the, of the Holy Spirit there. But in verse 25, it says, Then... Um, and they, when, when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem. So this is, uh, uh, this is uh, Peter and John after, they, uh, after the gospel has been preached in Samaria. They go up there to help organize the church. Now they're coming back. And they're preaching all over these Samaritan cities as well. So the gospel's begun to spread, not just from Jerusalem. Now it's in Judea. Now it's in Samaria. And, uh, and we get to chapter 9. And we'll skip down a little bit to verse number 31. All right, look at chapter 9, verse 31. And uh, here he says, <clears throat> then, all right, this is, uh, you know, what has happened in the meantime, all right? Uh, Saul has gotten saved, right? He has his Damascus Road uh, vision. 
and uh, gets converted. And so now in verse 31, then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. All right, so there's a lot of cool things that happen in that verse, right? But <clears throat> probably the coolest thing to me, you might not notice the first time you read it. And that is <clears throat> the fourth word in the sentence. All right, then had the churches rest. This is the first time you find the word church in the plural in the New Testament. Now, how do we get there? How do we get from one church in Jerusalem to having multiple churches in chapter 9? Well, it's that, it's that whole messy circumstance that we see of disciples spreading out and now Philip's going and preaching in Samaria and, and Peter and, and, uh, and the other leaders, uh, you know, the apostles are like, oh, what are we going to do about this? You know, and Peter and John go up there and they see that this is a real work of God and, and, and they see uh, a church established there. And, and I, think, I think, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of detail where these other churches in, in Judea came from. Um, but if we, if we look at chapter 8, and verse 14, this, uh, I think, is probably the best explanation we can find for how it all worked. Okay? You've got the, these disciples leaving Jerusalem, right? And they're sharing the gospel everywhere they go. Well, that doesn't make a church, right? Uh, <clears throat> you know, somebody's got to be a pastor, right? There needs to be things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there needs to be some organization. You know, how, how did all that happen? Where we can actually say there are churches in, in Judea and churches in Samaria. Well, I think we have some insight in chapter 8. So chapter 8 in verse uh, number 14. All right, this is after Philip has uh, preached the gospel in Samaria. Uh, Verse 14, now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. Uh, For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And uh, this, this seems to be, you know, because God wanted to make a visible demonstration that he was accepting the Samaritans that believed on him, uh, just like he would do the same with the, with the Gentiles when Peter would go to Cornelius. Um, <clears throat> but um, so he says, when, they, when they, they prayed for them, and uh, verse number 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Ghost. And, and so we see Peter and, and John, representatives of the existing church, coming to this group of people, um, that had been saved and, and baptized in the ministry of Philip and recognizing them ultimately as a church. And, and that seems to be uh, the example that we have in Scripture is, is that this is the process. The gospel is preached in an area. People get saved. Those saved people get baptized. And then representatives from an existing church uh, assist and recognize them as a legitimate church. All right, now that's how it could work. You know, say, uh, you know, here in, in Sacramento, maybe... Maybe, you know, through your soul winning efforts, you uh, start reaching some people in, a, in a, uh, a city, you know, 20 minutes down the road and eventually have enough people there that you're thinking, you know, maybe they should just have their own church. And, and so you, 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 you organize them as, a, as another church. All right. But <clears throat> all right, that's how it can work when, when we're talking about, you know, going back to Jerusalem, reaching their Judea and maybe Jerusalem even reaching their Samaria. We still don't really see how they're supposed to reach the uttermost parts of the earth yet, do we? All right, <clears throat> you follow what I'm saying? All right, so we, we see, you know, churches planting churches. Uh, we see, we see the, the gospel spreading little by little. All right, <clears throat> but how in the world does the gospel get to the rest of the world? All right, well, when we get to chapter 10, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. All right, Peter is, uh, 
uh, you know, warned by the angels that somebody's coming. Uh, he has that vision and uh, he gets invited to go preach to Cornelius and those that are at his house and they get saved. And, and again, God sends that, that visible uh, manifestation of, of the spirit. But in chapter 11, all right, <clears throat> now Barnabas is uh, sent from the church at Jerusalem. He's sent up to Antioch because uh, they had heard a bunch of people had gotten saved up in Antioch. And so Barnabas gets sent up there. And he, you know, to use our modern vernacular, he organizes the church and becomes their first pastor. Okay? And while he's pastoring that church, he remembers this young man that had gotten saved, that had been persecuting the believers, that had gone home to Tarsus. And he says, you know what? I wonder what, Paul, I wonder what Saul's up to. And he uh, goes and gets Saul, brings him to Antioch, brings him on staff, we might say, as an assistant, as, uh, uh, as somebody that he could mentor. And, uh, and Saul begins to serve the Lord with him there. And so when we get to Acts chapter 13, the stage is set. All right? Paul and Barnabas <clears throat> have been involved in the ministry. They've uh, helped this church get established and grow. They've uh, helped some other men to get prepared for the ministry. And in chapter 13, we read, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So they got all these preachers here. And in verse 2, as he ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So the stage is set. <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas are properly prepared to go now and start other churches. And this is how it plays out. Okay, God puts a call upon them, and the church leadership recognizes that. All right? It's not just, not just Saul and Barnabas standing up and saying, well, we're going to go whether you like it or not. Right? Uh, no, the church is going to commission them, because that's where the authority is. That's what the commission was given to, was the church. All right? So, so as, there, as the minister of the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said to the leadership, not just Saul and Barnabas, but it said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, right, they ordained them, they gave them authority, they sent them away. Now, I love verse 4. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. All right, well, we just read in verse 3 they were sent by the church. But in verse 4 we see they were sent by the Holy Ghost. Because he's the one that gives that, the church that, that unity of the faith to agree that, yes, these guys are to go into this ministry and we are going to send them out. And so this is, how, this is how it plays out. All right, so, so a church is to evangelize its Jerusalem. It can also reach into its Judea, if you will, its region around. And it might even be able to stretch a little farther and reach into Samaria, right? And, and evangelize, maybe send some buses, maybe eventually organize some churches in their area. And that's an awesome thing when God allows a church to do that. But then we also need to answer that question, well, how are we supposed to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. How are we supposed to get to the gospel and to, to, to the uttermost? And here's how it works. God calls out men. All right? But that's just half the story. How then are these men going to finance their ministry? All right? And that's where we get to our fourth point tonight. And uh, our first couple points went real quick, and then we start slowing down. All right? So, <laughs> but our fourth point, uh, which is the plan. All right, the plan. And uh, I want you to see that in the New Testament, we are given some insight into how Paul's ministry was financed. 
I know the first thing we always think of was he was a tent maker, right? But you know, that was just a very small part of the story. There was a lot more to the story than that. And so turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter number four. We'll get back to some things in the book of Acts before we're done here, but Philippians chapter four. And verse number 10. <clears throat> All right, so <clears throat> the book of Philippians um, really is a good example of uh, a missions um, report letter. You know, yeah, Paul tells them what he's doing, tells them what things are going on and so on in the earlier part of the book. Um, and then we, and he shares his heart. You know, it's just, it's just a really wonderful book in so many ways. But at the end of the book, he begins to thank them for their financial support. All right, look at verse number 10. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Now, if we take that verse by itself, um, <clears throat> you know, what, what does this mean? All right, what's it mean that, that their care of him hath flourished again? All right, does that mean they, you know, kind of didn't like him very much anymore, and now they started caring and started praying for him again? All right, maybe, all right, but uh, as we read the next few verses, it becomes a little more clear what, what this care is that has been stirred up. So in verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So obviously this care of him involves something to do with his physical needs. Right? Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Wonderful verse. Uh, if you study it in context, right? It's not, it's not one of those promises you just stick to whatever you feel like doing. Um, <clears throat> no, it has to do with, with contentment and doing the will of God. But in verse 14, he says, Notwithstanding, <clears throat> ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now, if you just think about that phrase, communicate with my affliction. Um, and we, if we just take that in the, in the way we, in the modern English, use the word communicate, um, that's a really silly phrase, isn't it? To communicate with my affliction. Like you give, give a phone call to my, you know, my sore toe or whatever, communicate with my affliction. All right, sorry. <clears throat> I used to have a really ridiculous sense of humor sometimes, I guess. But so, so again, what, what is he talking about? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious, but some people just don't see you know, giving to missions in the Bible. And it's obvious if you, if you really take it to heart. So in verse 15, he says, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me. There's that word again, communicated with me. But then he defines it for us. As concerning giving and receiving, but she only. See, that word communicating uh, is, a, is a very, very broad word. All right, We use it in a very limited way in our modern context but it means much more than that it can mean you know sharing and giving and that's that's what that's what paul's talking about he says you 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 sent financial support okay that's what he's saying now so let's dig into this a little bit deeper <clears throat> all right so communicate means that they were sharing their financial resources with him as verse 15 demonstrates but what what does this phrase in the beginning of the gospel when i departed into macedonia what's that talking about let's let's get the historical context here so let's go back to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. 
We have uh, Paul's second missionary journey. In uh, verses uh, 10 through 31, we see the, uh, uh, the Philippian church, how it got started. All right, the um, prayer meeting by the, <clears throat> let's hear in verse number, um, oh, where am I at? Okay, wrong page. All right, verse number 10, after he had seen the vision immediately, they, uh, we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering as the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Uh, therefore, listening from Troas, we came uh, with straight course to Simothracia, and next day to, to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that, uh, of that part of Macedonia and a colony. And we were in the city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And of course, uh, Lydia gets saved, and then they ended up uh, getting arrested, right? And the Philippian jailer gets saved and all those things. So an <clears throat> exciting story how this church has started. But uh, if we skip down to verse number 40, it says they went out of the prison, all right, after the jailer gets saved and, and the, uh, uh, the uh, leaders of the city realize they made a mistake in, in beating a Roman citizen. Uh, they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. So now they're leaving Philippi, and I want you to notice where they go. They go in chapter 17. He says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was the synagogue of the Jews. And as Paul, uh, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So we see him uh, going to Thessalonica, uh, which is also in Macedonia. All right, so we're still in Macedonia. Then uh, verse number 10, and the brethren immediately sent away Paul and uh, Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. So next they go to Berea and preach the gospel there. Uh, again, still in Macedonia. But then skip down to verse 15. And they, uh, they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus for to come, with, uh, come to him with all speed, they departed. So here in verse 15, they go to Athens. Athens is, uh, is now they're leaving Macedonia. Okay? And we skip down to chapter 18. Um, he preaches the gospel in Athens, but uh, apparently no, no church is, is started there. But in chapter 18, he says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. All right, so <clears throat> all right, we go back to Philippians. Keep your place in Acts. But in Philippians, he said, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. So at this point in his ministry, he said there was only one church supporting us during this, this phase, and that was you. All right, well, what, what phase is this? Well, <clears throat> it was between their time at Berea and their time at Athens. Okay, so <clears throat> it's not a very long time after he left Philippi. That's what I want you to see. All right, Paul is a very busy ministry. He goes to these different cities, all right, and now he's going into... Uh, uh, the next region as he goes to, to Athens and Corinth, but it's not been a long time. Um, <clears throat> but, but he says that you sent financial support to us there. Now, Philippians 4, verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my necessity. All right, well, wait a minute. Thessalonica, that was when he was still in Macedonia. Matter of fact, that was the next church that Paul, that Paul started when he left Philippi. So he says, even, even when we first left you and went to Thessalonica, you started sending financial support to us then. 
He says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, then he rewinds a little bit in verse 16, for even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity. So at least twice, while they were in Thessalonica, they received financial support from the church at Philippi. Uh, so, so my point is that it was, it was right away this church at Philippi realized their need to invest in Paul's ministry and they began to give to him as he went to the next town to preach the gospel. Uh, and again, that would not be the last time. As we saw in the previous verse, he would, uh, uh, they, they would send it when he, when he left Macedonia. Um, but again, in verse 16, there was at least twice that, that they sent support. So all of this was over a relatively short time span. And uh, really, I, I don't think it's stretching the scriptures too much to see it as, as monthly sending support. You know, there, there was probably some regularity to it, some organization to it. And uh, they were sending this financial support to help the Apostle Paul. Now, I believe there's no reason, I certainly see no reason in the Scripture, to think that, that they did not continue this practice. Nor is there any reason to assume that other churches did not get involved in this. Where did they get this idea, right? Paul probably taught it to them. Um, we'll see some examples. We'll see an example where, where he uh, mentions this idea of giving to, to his ministry to the church at Corinth. Um, I know we, we usually think of you know, him saying that they did not support him, and that's true. <clears throat> he did not demand it from them, but he did mention <clears throat> later on that he did kind of expect that they would support him. Um, and so there's no reason to think that other churches didn't do it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 7 uh, Paul, in writing to that church at Corinth, he, sa he says, Have I committed an offense unto you uh, in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I've preached to you the gospel of God freely? He says this in verse 8, I robbed other churches, right? Taking wages of them to do you service. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things, I've kept myself from being burdensome unto you and so will I keep myself. All right, so again, even when he's writing to the church of Corinth, he says, man, when I was with you, yeah, I didn't, I didn't ask for a paycheck from you, but instead I took money from other churches so that I could preach the gospel to you. And he specifically mentions Macedonia, where again, we have the church of Philippi, we have the church of Thessalonica, we have the church of Berea. Uh, and, and so uh, we see that he said he robbed other churches, plural. Right? He's being sarcastic, he's, didn't actually steal from the churches, but, you know, he's, <clears throat> you get it, right? And uh, <clears throat> so these other churches are supporting him, but it's more than just the church of Philippi. We know that for sure, right? Because he said he robbed other churches, plural. So it wasn't just church of Philippi. There were other churches involved. And again, <clears throat> uh, so again, we see that the church of Philippi, at least, sent money to support Paul uh, while he was in Thessalonica. Uh, sent money again while he's in Thessalonica and at least sent money when he left to uh, go into the region of Achaia. And, uh, and now we see that he definitely, uh, they definitely helped him when he was at Corinth as well. Um, some other examples in Scripture that you might not notice if you're not reading carefully. Romans 15 and verse 24. Um, <clears throat> Paul is writing to that church at Rome. Uh, <clears throat> I've heard it suggested that the that the letter to the Romans might be kind of his missionary package, right? And if, if you're unfamiliar with that terminology, uh, you know, a potential missionary, when they contact a pastor that they hope will consider supporting them, 
we'll send them an information packet, right, telling their salvation testimony and where they're from, their ministry experience, uh, their doctrinal statement, uh, where they're going, all those kinds of things. And uh, if you think about the book, book of Romans, that certainly is his doctrinal statement, isn't it, uh, concerning the gospel. Uh, but also when we get to Romans 15 and verse 24, he says, Once I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you. If first I be somewhat filled with your company. Now that phrase, to be brought on my way thitherward, you know, if we just think about that in English, you know, obviously that means they're going to help him at least, right? Help him get to Spain, his new mission field. And, uh, but that phrase is actually a technical phrase used several times in the New Testament and always refers to the idea of, of financial support or sending help or, 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 you know, a man on a mission and a church is helping them, all right? That's the picture we get every time. And so he was asking the church at Rome for their financial support. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, we mentioned already, but in verses 14 through 16, I'll read it to you. It says, For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things without our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope that when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. And that's why I know that Paul did deputation, because... That's what happens when you're on deputation. All the churches try to enlarge you, right? <laughs> they overfeed you. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <clears throat> but seriously, what, what do you think he meant by that? All right, that, that, that when, your, when your faith is increased, that we'd be enlarged by you. Well, in verse 16, and uh, I, <clears throat> you know, I know I sound like an English teacher, all right, but verse 15 ends with a comma, all right? Verse 16 is the same sentence. So, <clears throat> so what is this enlargement going to accomplish? to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. All right, so in other words, Paul was expecting the church at Corinth to eventually get it through their heads that they need to support him, that they need to commit to faith promise, right? And they need to help him get to the regions beyond. So God's plan for fulfilling the Great Commission, all right, is that we as a church, as a body, that we recognize our responsibility and begin at our Jerusalem, all right, Sacramento, and, and share the gospel with everybody we can. Try to get people saved. Those that get saved, we get them dunked in the water and we disciple them to follow the Lord. <clears throat> all right, that's, but that's just part of it. Because we also have a responsibility to get the gospel all around the world. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, it's going to be by sending missionaries and by helping financially support missionaries that are sent out of other churches. Now, last point, <clears throat> notice the product, number five. What will be the result of this? All right, what will be the result of us sending out missionaries and financially investing in missionaries? Well, first of all, <clears throat> the first part of the product is the propagation of the gospel, right? The gospel will go forward. The, there will be provision for the work. The gospel will be preached to the lost, and that ought to matter to us. All right, if we have the heart that Paul had, you know, in, in Philippians chapter 1, he said, I don't even care if I, if I live or die. What, what matters to me is that the gospel's going forward, right? That's where his focus was. That's where our focus ought to be. So the propagation of the gospel, um, here in Philippians 4, verse 16, he says, For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again into my necessity. All right, so Paul had needs, and the churches were to take care of those needs. 
so that he could keep preaching the gospel. Now think about the times when he had to work as a tent maker. All right, he talks about working night and day and, and uses terms that, that mean, you know, working to the point of exhaustion. You think that was better than being financially supported and being able to, to really focus on preaching the gospel and discipling people all, with all of his strength and all of his might? <clears throat> it does matter that we give to missions. Now look at verse 17. Paul said, already he told them that he, he rejoiced earlier in verse 10 that they were giving to him. But he says, I want you to understand, it's not because I desire a gift. Okay? He says, not because I desire a gift. But he says, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. All right, so let's think about that verse for a little bit. All right, so why does it matter that, that we give to missions? Well, because this ultimately is how we discharge our responsibility. All right, as a body and as individuals in the body, you have a responsibility to get the gospel to China, to get the gospel to New York City, to get the gospel to, to, to Africa and Asia and all these faraway places where you probably will never go yourself, right? But the responsibility is still there. Well, how do we fulfill that responsibility? By giving the missions. You see, this is how we can discharge our responsibility to reach those who are too far away for us to preach to ourselves. Now remember, we are going to give account for our lives someday. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are manifest in your consciences. What's Paul saying? He's saying, man, we're going to give account one of these days. And one of the things we're going to give account for is our involvement in the Great Commission. Matthew 6 and verse 20 says, To lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And uh, some folks just kind of claim that verse and they think, well, if, I, if, I don't, if I'm not living too high on the hog in this life, then I must have treasures over there instead. All right? But no, you, you're not going to have treasures there unless you send them there. All right? It, it's a command to lay up those treasures. We've got to do something. In other words, we've, we've got to invest our lives in that which is eternal. Which means we need to share the gospel with the lost because guess what? People are eternal. Souls are eternal. And so spending time preaching the gospel to the lost, helping others to grow spiritually, that has eternal benefit. Uh, encouraging other believers not to quit, that has an eternal benefit. And enabling others to do the work of the Great Commission. Supporting missions. Think about this. You know, you, you work your job and you, you get paid. You know, sometimes you get a salary. Sometimes it's, it's an hourly wage. And it's easy to see how that money... It really is time, and time is money, right? It, it, it's, there's a lot of truth to that. And one of the ways you can redeem your time when you're stuck at work, think about it, uh, let's say you make $20 an hour, okay, just, a, just for a round number, and uh, <clears throat> isn't it reasonable that you could take at least one of those hours and devote it to the gospel, right, and just take $20 a week and give to missions? That, that seems reasonable to me. Um, but my point is, then you take that hour, by doing that, you've made that hour now, not just an hour that I'm at work to meet my needs, 
or to, to get the things I want, but now you've turned that hour into an hour of reaching the lost because you're investing in the work of mission. You see, giving to missions really is an investment. We're investing for eternity. Um, Paul says that, that, that they would have fruit that would abound to their account because of what he did on the field. Somebody said that, that, that missions giving is not about what a church does for the missionary. It's about what the church does through the missionary. There's a lot of truth to that. You see, it's like buying stock in what Paul is doing or what the missionary is doing. Again, the Philippians couldn't go to all these different cities and preach the gospel. But what they could do is give. And whatever the missionary was able to accomplish, they got some of the credit. Every person he witnessed to, every person that got saved, they got some of the credit. All right, so, so the product is, first of all, the propagation of the gospel. But secondly, notice verse 18. He says, but I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. And notice how he describes their financial gift that Epaphroditus brought. He says, it's an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable and well-pleasing to me, right? No, to God, right? Because when we give to missions, when we give through our church to support missionaries, that is a sacrifice to God. Now, the thing about sacrifice is it's not always easy. And it's not always painless. Real sacrifice does cost us something. It might be that it costs us a few trips to Starbucks or the, or the, or the you know, boba tea place or whatever, you know. <clears throat> it, might, it might mean that we, we cut back on some of these things that we don't really need. But isn't it worth it? Isn't he worth it? Because it is a gift to the Lord. It's an expression of our love to Him. And so we give to God, we give to our Lord Jesus Christ by giving through our church to His properly ordained laborers. Then notice in verse number 19, the third product, and that is a promise to the giver. He says, But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, there's a lot of rich promises in the Bible. But, you know, this is, this is one of the most exciting promises, isn't it? It's a wonderful promise. It's a glorious promise. But it's a promise that does have a condition. It's not necessarily obvious if you just take that verse out of context, which so many people like to do, right? But if you read that verse in context, who is that promise directed to? It's not just directed to every believer. It's directed to the church that's giving to missions. You see, by giving to missions, we give, we give ourselves an opportunity to see God work. We give ourselves an opportunity to see God not only work through the missionary, but also work to meet our needs. You see, most people who give to missions give out of money that they're eventually going to need. Right? I mean, think about it. We don't know what's coming up down the road. Might have a flat tire, might break a tooth. You know, all kinds of different expenses come up unexpectedly, right? And so 
if we are worldly wise, we're going to save up for those things, right? We're going <clears> to... <throat> But God says, no, if you take that extra money and instead of, of saving it for a rainy day, you give it to missions. He says, I'll take care of your needs when those hard things come. You see, if we're giving what we'll eventually need to meet the missionaries' needs, God promises that he will meet our needs. And so Paul here is writing to a church to thank them for sending money while he's at Thessalonica and so on. <clears throat> for helping them even at times when other churches were not. For sacrificing in their gifts to meet his need. And then under the inspiration of God, Paul relays this wonderful promise. And so tonight, if you're not giving to missions, you're missing out on this precious promise. Luke 6.38, <clears throat> Jesus even himself said, Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. You see, God blesses and God loves the cheerful giver, doesn't he? So how should we think about missions giving? Well, we need to see our responsibility. And we need to see that one of the ways that we are going to fulfill that responsibility is by giving the missions. And if we are not giving the missions, then you better start packing your bags because you, you've got a long ways to travel to get the gospel all around the world. <clears throat> but then also understand that when we give to missions, we're investing in eternal rewards. And God promises to take care of us in the meantime. If we're thinking properly about missions giving, this will be the most exciting time of the year for us. Because we'll be saying, Lord, <clears throat> how much do you want me to keep? <laughs> right? We'll be saying, Lord, how much can I give? You know, I, I want to do all I can. Because I want to see the gospel go forward and I want to see you work. And so tonight I hope that this message has helped to shape that thinking or at least remind you of the principles involved. And I hope that you will, by faith, <clears throat> commit to invest in missions because the need is great <clears throat> and, and the cause is worth it. And you won't regret it when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day and thank you, Lord, for your word. And I do pray that you'd help us to think biblically concerning missions and concerning giving. And Lord, I pray you'd guide your people and Lord, that you would enable this church to just continue to do great things through missions. Lord, please work now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor. Together, if you need to come and pray. What a message. What a vital message on the New Testament faith.